Well, it's good to see all of you this morning and uh, those of you who are joining us online, welcome. Um, just want to say, uh, just by way of announcement, we will have our Zoom fellowship tonight, just for those who can't be here and see all of us and those who are uh, uh, at home. So if you want to see some people who are at home and um, if you want to show yourself to them, you come and join. And if, you wanna, if you're gone and want to join us, I'll send out a link about 15 minutes. Six to seven will be done. And so it'd be wonderful for any of you to come. And we'll just rehash my message. We'll just update on people's lives, pray as is appropriate. Just kind of for an hour of uh, group talk will be an enjoyable time. Uh, well, this past week has been quite a week for our nation as we have faced some riots in the capital and as, uh, as uh, democracy's, been, d- democracy's been under siege, as so many people have said, and there's trial and difficulty and hardship. Uh, it's always good to put things in perspective, however. Uh, this, this past week, I, I read a book by, by Dr. Bob Provost. Uh, Lorinda, you work for Slavic Gospel. He was the former per, uh, president of Slavic Gospel for years. And uh, he sent me this book, and um, just really appreciate it. He signed it even for me, and I got it in the mail about uh, two weeks ago. No, maybe about four weeks ago, something like that. And I picked it up this week, and I read it. Could hardly put it down. It was a, it's a great read. It's called Tearing Down the Wall. Prayer and the Untold Story. And what Dr. Provost tells, he tells the story of going into the Soviet Union when it first opened up. So we're talking about like 1989 or so, after 70 years of communist oppression and persecution on the church, and when things are about as bad as they ever could get, it opened up, and he was one of the first Christians in the nation, and he he reports this, this whole book kind of gives some background to the Slavic Gospel Association, but focuses most of it upon what he found when he went into, uh, into the Soviet Union. And um, what he found was, quite frankly, amazing and encouraging. And I just want to put things in perspective about everything that we face in America right now. Um, it could be far worse. Uh, as I read a missionary letter this week from a friend of mine who's a, a Nepali man, and uh, he said that um, in, in our country we vote with ballots, in his country he has voted with bullets in the past. And so even if it gets there where the Soviet Union was, let me read you just a, a little bit of his perspective about what he found. So again, this is after 70 years of oppression, persecuted Christians, they couldn't get advancement, they couldn't uh, have, have good jobs. They were poor and oppressed. The churches persecuted. Bibles taken away. And he said this. He says, uh, Through my visits to four local Kiev Baptist churches, I got acquainted with many church members. If you were a believer, you could not study at a university or ever be a supervisor. Because you didn't drink alcohol, however, you might get a job operating a construction crane or driving a train. So nearly all Christians had low-paying jobs, struggled to support their families, And all the wives were expected to work outside their homes. And as children, their churches and parents had taught them that if they had Jesus, they needed nothing else. They were absolutely complete in Christ. They were the most faithful believers, he says, that I had ever met. The materially poorest believers I had ever met. And the most joyful believers I had ever encountered. So if we think about things in America, and I don't think it will be this way, but even if they get super bad, this testimony would be of the United States. Believers being the poorest, but being the most joyful he's ever encountered. He says, I learned that most church services have five services each week, that the members of their families attended every service. And some of that is because they were excluded from the, the social web of, uh, of the Soviet Union, they this was their only social web, is the church. Many of them had served time in prison for their faith, and most of their families had someone killed for his or her faith. Um, and the, the services, he said, um, well, we arrived, so at this building, we arrived 30 minutes early to find 100 people standing outside the house of prayer, which is the, the church building, which has already filled the capacity. And those standing outside in the falling snow were listening to the pre-service reading of God's Word on the dozens of small transistor radios affixed to the exterior wall. And uh, it's interesting this. is Inside the building, 
there were 800 seats that were all filled, 600 more people standing every inch of the floor. People sitting near the aisles would periodically give up their seats to the standing people so people could sit down for a while. Little children filled the first three rows sitting next to one another, and they never talked to their neighbors. They're well-behaved. Bibles had all been confiscated, so no one except for the man reading in the pulpit. Uh, So no one had one except for the man reading in the pulpit. And these people had all come early to listen to the reading of God's word for an hour before the service. And I learned later that many of the people who were standing on the back and outside were visiting seekers from the community. He said during a season of uh, after, so he talked about the service here. Uh, believers had no books, but all of them knew all the verses by heart. So when the words weren't on the overhead, they still sang because they knew all the words. They sang in parts and filled the building with a more glorious sound than I'd ever heard before. Then the choir sang a beautiful anthem and the first brother preached a short short message from God's word. During a season of corporate prayer, the people kept competing for who would be able to pray next. And there was never a time of waiting for the next person to pray. And this pattern of preaching and praying and singing was repeated over and over and over again until three hours later, the church service finally ended. Um, and I would say this, that throughout that just, just at the end, throughout the 72 years of oppression, God's faithful people had rarely, if ever encountered a false teacher because things were so difficult and so, uh, oppressed that if you're going to come to church, you are going to be a, a genuine believer. It's what persecution does. Persecution like sifts the church and refines it and gives it just a, a passion in it. So I would just say this. If our country goes bad, it's good for the church. And in that, we can rejoice. Because that's the end of persecution. Persecution might try to, try to squash the church. But after 70 years of persecution in the Soviet Union, the church only flourished. And, and by the way, that's what we're seeing in the book of Acts. Despite opposition to the gospel, the church flourishes. That's what we see in the, the, the book of Acts. And so, if you want to open your Bibles, we are in Acts Chapter 4 this morning, you can open your Bibles or turn them on. Uh, I think opening is better uh, if you can get to Acts chapter 4 because you can, you can see more. My message this morning is entitled, The First Wave of Persecution. Um, because it comes right here in, in chapter 4, and it's really the first time that we see persecution coming in, in the book of Acts. In, in recent months, we've been looking at the book of Acts, and um, we've seen Jesus, chapter 1, uh, appear resurrected and then ascended. And we saw in chapter 2 the Holy Spirit come down and, and convict the, the people that 3,000 people believed at the preaching of Peter. And then in chapter 3 we saw this lame man who was lame for 40 years from his birth stand up and walk and leap and praise God. And many more thousands of people came to believe. And then in chapter 4, they began last week, we see the turn. We see the turn towards persecution. We see the apostles imprisoned, questioned by the religious authorities. We see Peter boldly proclaiming Jesus, risen from the dead, as the only Savior. And that's at verse 12. And now we continue with the story. But know this, that that this is only the beginning of persecution in the book of Acts. I I read from this book from uh, Dr. Provost that this speaks about the end. So this speaks about not only Acts 28, but speaks even beyond that. The end of persecution, this is what it all heads toward, is a refining of the church. But this from chapter 4 on, we're going to see intense persecution throughout the, the life of the early church. In fact, persecution was so so normative that uh, when Paul was planting churches in Pisidia, Antioch, and Derby. He told them it's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Just right up front, you come into the church, he says it's going to be hard. And we're going to face many tribulations. And Paul told Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You want to live godly? Persecution's coming. I mean, persecution is in the, in the future of all faithful Christians. That's why Peter said in his first epistle... 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. Like, Because it's not strange. This is what just happens. This is the divinely inspired book of church history shows us and tells us over and over again that persecution is coming, is coming hard. I, I read uh, one commentary this week that said, beginning in chapter 4, there are only three chapters in the whole rest of the book of Acts that does not include any persecution. 
So it's sort of a sort of a theme here. And my message this morning is entitled "The First Wave of Persecution," because that's what we're going to see. We're going to see just the first wave. But wave is going to come upon wave upon wave upon wave upon wave. And this morning we just get the the first wave. And the good news is this, however, that persecution, however severe, will never stop the advancement of the church. It'll always progress. It'll always move on. So I want to read our text just to put the whole thing in your mind. And then this is our custom. I'll just open it up as we just look at it. This is right after Peter had boldly proclaimed... That it's through Jesus that this man has been risen from the dead, and there's salvation in no other name other than under heaven except through Jesus. He says this, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they, that is the council of Sanhedrin, right, their, their accusers, their judges, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What should we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to... To God, you must be judged, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. I just want to jump right here into my my first point. The, The council recognized the boldness of Peter and John. I mean, look again at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were educated common men, they were astonished. And this, this verse speaks about the amazement of these gathered theologians. They had before them two men who spoke and acted with great boldness. And they described them as being uneducated and common. That is, these men had, had not gone to their seminaries. They had not been educated by their rabbis. They had not received their graduation certificates. And yet here they were, boldly proclaiming the truth of Jesus. That he was the one risen from the dead. That he was the one who gave the power to heal this lame man. That he was the one who fulfilled the scripture in Psalm 118 and verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected. Is this very Jesus, who is the cornerstone, who is the only Savior? And these, the apostles were not intimidated in any way by these authorities. And these authorities, by the way, had the power to turn them over to Pontius Pilate, who had the authority to crucify them. They'd already seen that. They knew what was ahead of them, as Jesus had experienced a couple months before. But they stood their ground, and they expressed their faith and hope in Jesus. And I just say this, this verse here, verse 13, has lots of lessons for us. First of all, here's just a lesson which I think is helpful for us as we consider even the book of Acts, which says we ought to be my witnesses. Here it is. First of all, you don't need a formal theological education to be used of the Lord. You don't need to go to school to be used of the Lord. Here are these apostles hadn't gone to their schools. And case in point is Jesus himself. Do you remember John chapter 7, what was said of him? It was, in the, it was during a feast. In the middle of the feast, Jesus stood among them, and he was teaching those who were assembled. And the Jews who witnessed it said this, John seven fifteen, How is it this man has learning when he has never studied? In other words, right, how is this man can speak so well, having never come to our schools? Well, Jesus had a school that the Pharisees knew not of. And, and, and that's the point, right? You don't need to go to a theological school to be used of the Lord. The apostles didn't, and they changed the world. Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2. He preached, and 3,000 were saved. And, and here, a little bit later, in chapter 4, chapter 4 and verse 4, we see this number of men up to 5,000. When you add women, when you add children, we're talking north of maybe 10,000 people that come from these educated common men. They, they were changing the world. In Acts chapter 17, when... When the apostles went and they preached to um, Thessalonica, those in Thessalonica said, oh, these people are here who have turned the world upside down. These uneducated common men. How much education do you think Peter had? 
he was a fisherman. Didn't have much school. Probably had a GED. Maybe. It's kind of what he was. And yet, there they were, standing before the most educated people in the world, putting them to shame, arguing from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Now, how appropriate is it for me to speak about this common men making the impact when this week, many of you in the Weekly Word saw this, I got in the mail from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary my degree that I just finished in December. <laughs> yeah. It says, um, the faculty of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and the authority vested in it by the Board of Trustees hereby confers upon Stephen D. Brandon the degree of Doctor of Ministry. Signed by the chairman of the board of trustees, the, the provost of the seminary, the dean of the school, and the president, Al Moeller. And um, so it's been a lot of work. I'm very thankful for that degree. But I'm here to tell you, you do not need a doctor of ministry to be effective in ministry. You don't need a seminary degree to be a, a solid witness for Christ. And that's just to encourage all of you. Right? I've studied Greek and I've studied Hebrew. Enough to say you don't need Greek and Hebrew. Your English Bibles are, are good enough. But the call of Acts is that we would, right? Jesus calls us to be my witnesses. And you don't need to say, oh, I can't do that because that's the job of the pastor. I can't do that because I don't have a degree. You go, let's, let's find someone else. No, we're all called to do that. We're all called to open our mouths and, and speak up. And I had a, had a great illustration of that this week. Uh, Avon and I uh, spent the week in Arizona with my dad. We took advantage of the low airfares and went down on Monday, and we came back on Friday. And just because of uh, COVID, there's been some isolation there. And for us to be present with them in Arizona was was helpful to them. And um, uh, it was it was good for, for them to be able to have some more company because they've been pretty socially isolated. And and in these days of COVID, I was able to work remotely, having some meetings via Zoom and making my phone calls and doing my emails. And so I worked remotely this past week from Arizona. Anyway, we arrived on Monday afternoon and promptly took a walk in my parents' neighborhood. And uh, my, my mom and dad kind of walked out a little bit. And then my mom sat in a wheelchair and dad pushed her back. And then Yvonne and I and my dad started this walk around the neighborhood of where they were uh, in that retirement community in Arizona. And as we walked around... Um, my, my dad would, would comment on the person who lives here and would tell us about that person. And, and not just kind of what they did, but more spiritually where they were, uh, whether they're liberal or whether they're non-believing or, or whether they, you know, are, are legalistic, kind of some kind of church like that or, or, you know, been involved in other things. And just kind of not, not every house, but I would say in our 20-minute walk, he probably talked about 10, 15, 20 houses Something like that. Maybe it's high. Maybe 10 houses. I mean, 10 houses. Okay. So, and I probably just talked about where they were and uh, the spiritual conversations that he had, the, the books that, that would be appropriate that he gave to these people, uh, sometimes recommending Christian movies or a Christian sermon. Or, and, and in fact, with our video online nowadays, he talked about, oh, yeah, I, I've, I've asked this guy to watch your sermon and he really likes your sermon. And, you know, but he, whatever, is, is this, this place? And the responses were varied. Some were interested, others were not. Most are polite. Um, but here's the point. My dad, who's watching, <laughs> hey, Dad, um, if he can figure out the technology, which is a struggle for him, hopefully he figured out the technology you hear. I just say I was super encouraged by your evangelistic zeal of just being out and about, being a constant witness of Christ to those who are around him. And that's what we're called to do. We're just called to be my witnesses. It's a call of Jesus in our lives. And you don't need a seminary degree to do so. Uh, and one of the greatest images, or illustrations biblically of that, is the man born blind. Remember, Jesus healed him by spitting on the ground, making a, l- a little bit of mud, and, and then putting that on his eyes. And the man could see instantly. And, and this man, though he's blind, he didn't have a lot of education. He stood before the religious authorities who tried to get him to denounce Jesus. And, and they had this kind of back and forth. And this blind man put these Pharisees uh, to shame. In his argumentation, I just want to read about that a little bit. So just consider, we're called to be my witnesses. And uh, here's this man, blind, healed, and then he just speaks. John 9, 15. The Pharisee said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And the guy says, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And the man said, he's a prophet. 
And they had no answer. Like, okay, so he discerned that he was a prophet, but they didn't because he was working on the Sabbath by spitting into the ground and making this, this spittle that he put upon the guy's eyes. A little while later, they called him again and listen to this conversation, John 9, 24 and following. For the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why? Do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be one of his disciples? And reviling him, he said, you are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Then they answered him, you were born utter sin and you would teach us. Cast him out. Did you see even his theological reasoning? He says, you don't know where he come from, but this guy has power. He opened my eyes. We know God doesn't listen to sinners. But if someone does worship God, God listens to him and and does his will. But never before in the the world has anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And and if this man weren't from God, he could do nothing. But he did something, so he must be from God. So theologically reasoning with these guys and putting all these these people with doctors of ministry to shame. This man born born blind, he wasn't intimidated. He simply told them what he knew. And that's what we're called to be witnesses. Simply tell people what you know. Whatever level that is, whatever education you have. That's what these disciples did in in Acts chapter 4, confounding the religious leaders with their boldness and their faith. And and down through the history uh, of the church, God has often used those with little education. Uh, Three names really come to my mind. Charles Spurgeon, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, John Bunyan. Just none of these men had proper theological formal education. John Bunyan was uneducated. He followed in his father's way, who was a tinker. That is, he followed around mending people's pots and pans. But Bunyan was a mighty preacher. And, and, and a picture of, of who he was, how mighty his preaching was, is best explained when you consider John Owen. Um, he was one of the brightest and most eminent scholars of Bunyan's day. He was a pastor, theologian, preacher, teacher, writer. He had some governmental connections, so he had some influence in parliament. I mean, just the, the highest of the high sort of men during John Bunyan's day. And um, if you read his writings, they're just dense, packed theological truth. I mean, it, it spends a lot of time. You just got to read slowly because it's so deep and so rich. Anyway, the custom of John Owen was to go and listen to John Bunyan preach, this tinker. And, and one day, Owen was asked by King Charles why he a great scholar as he was, went to hear this uneducated tinker preach. And Owen's reply was this. He says, I would willingly exchange all my learning for this tinker's power of touching men's hearts. So in other words, right, learning is nothing compared to a giftedness in ministry. And so don't ever think, church family, you cannot be used of God without a formal theological education. However, I want you to be careful because there are many who will say, amen to this. Oh, theology sermon seminary is bad. That's called the cemetery. Don't go there because it's really bad. We don't need an education. We can just stand and we can preach. And I would say, no, that's a, a swing to the other side. That's not right in any ways. For instance, Spurgeon started a Bible college and was immensely educated by his, his own reading. He was self-trained really well. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones had a, a meeting every Monday of local pastors so as to train and teach and educate the pastors around him for the ministry. John Bunyan just didn't have time for ministerial readings because he meetings because he was in prison the whole time. So he just wrote books that educated the world that were read far more than John Owen's books ever have been. And I just say this formal education is helpful. And I speak as one who's had a lot of formal education. I'm thankful for it. But you know what I'm most thankful for? It's forced me to read. It's forced me to think. It's forced me to to memorize. Because that's what school is. School forces you to read and forces you to learn and listen. Right? And and there's a way when you have a a book 
And you've got to write a report on that book or lead a discussion on that book or be responsible for the content on that book. Suddenly that book gets a lot more interesting than it ever was before. And that's the blessing. Right? Because in theological education, you're forced to reading. You're forced to wrestle with the Bible and all its implications. You're surrounded by men who know far more than you could ever, ever imagine. Because they, they read and they're, they're godly and they're ready to interact with you. And fundamentally, this is right, the thing I'm thankful for is the time it's forced me to think about the scriptures, to think about Jesus. And that is exactly the issue with Peter and John. Consider again verse 13. Here we go. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, much time with Jesus is what equips you to be a witness for him. And these three years that the disciples spent with Jesus was their own seminary. And and this was by design, by the way. When Jesus called his disciples, his plan was to send them out to preach. But he didn't merely just send them out to preach. There was something that was first. Mark 3.14. Jesus appointed the twelve, whom we also named apostles, so that he might be with them and he might send them out to preach. You've got to be with Jesus first to be able to go out to have something to say. And I don't think that was lost on the council. They knew that it was, it was their time with Jesus. That, that Jesus is the one who had no ministry credentials. He had no diplomas, no school of religion, no letters from the high priest, not licensed by the Sanhedrin. And yet he shocked the world. He shocked the Sanhedrin with his learning. And now Peter and John had the same boldness. And it dawned on them that, oh, just like their teacher, they'd been with Jesus. It's their reasoning. They must have received their strange power from him. And I think the secret of success of Bunyan and, and Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones is they spent much time with Jesus. Oh, maybe they didn't have a degree, right? But they were strong self-learners who spent many, many, many untold hours in the word and in prayer. And as a result, they were used greatly of the Lord because they'd been with Jesus. So you want to be bold like the apostles? School isn't the solution. School might help force you with some things, help get you ready so you can be a self-learner for the rest of your life. But I just say this, read his word, pray much, meditate, memorize all you can, and God will use all of us. He'll use PhDs like the Apostle Paul. He'll use MDs like Luke, the physician who wrote the book of Acts. He'll use GEDs like Peter and, and John. He'll use CPAs like Matthew, the tax collector who fit into that category. And God can use you as well. Just simply spend time with him and open your mouth when given opportunity and just speak from what you know. So I say this, young people, if you have an opportunity to have formal theological training, education someplace, take it. Take it. Steffi, right? Take it. Our girls have benefited from that by taking a gap year after high school to spend a year just kind of focusing on that and i don't think you guys regret any of it yeah no no regrets none and steffi's thinking about doing it next year spending a gap year just studying the bible while you can while you're young i was reading um instagram steve lawson who's a he's a preacher maybe you know his name maybe you don't but he teaches at the master's seminary for the doctor of ministry program there and uh he had a picture with someone who was teaching who is uh, one of the students that he had that week. And he said, oh, come join me at the Master's Seminary. Maybe someday you'll be one of my students. And I was just reading some of the comments and they were saying, oh, I wish I could go. I wish I could learn there. I wish I could be there. And how many people are older and wish they could have done? Children, when you're young, take up every opportunity you can. Study the scriptures. Know them well. Proclaim them boldly to others. So let's move on. We've seen the apostles' boldness in verse 13, and now we see the council's hardness. We see that 14 through 18. Let me just read 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. They were stumped. They were confounded. I mean, picture the scene. You got Peter and John standing there and the lame man who'd recently been healed in front of this semicircular sort of courtroom, if you will, where these people are up, up, and they're all down looking on you, Peter, John, and this man who was healed. you got 70 men, 70 of the theologians there, plus the high priest and the high priest's father who'd been in control for a long time, and several others of the high priestly family. So you got 70 
75 people there, 74 at least, and they're all standing in judgment in and, and Peter and John. And, and Peter had just delivered his defense regarding the power behind the healing of this man, and, and they saw the boldness of, of Peter and John, and they saw this lame man that a, general, a genuine miracle had taken place that, that no one could deny, and they did not know what to do. Verse 15. When they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what should we do with these men? I mean, there is confusion. They did not know what to do with those men. No law had been broken. The miracle was undeniable. The preachers were becoming popular with the people. You can read in verse 21, these people were, were praising God on account of the miracle that had taken place. Nothing that they said could be refuted by the council. It really left them with a few options. Right? What should we do with these men? We don't know. Well, you could let the men go, but then you'd kind of lose face. Like, why did you arrest them in the first place? Um, if you punish them, you'd risk the wrath of the people, a little bit like John the Baptist sort of days, because the people viewed him as a prophet. The people respected them greatly because this miracle was evident to all the inhabitants of, of Jerusalem, because that's what he says. Look at verse 16, right? What should we do with this man? And here's the reasoning. For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Everybody knew this miracle took place. There was no denying this miracle took place. Here they were. They couldn't refute what they said. And they they were in a a pickle. And they concluded all they could do was warn them. Look at verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. See, the problem, it's interesting here, the problem with these men is they asked the wrong question. Uh, Look at the question they asked. They asked in verse 16, what shall we do with these men? That was the wrong question. You know what question they should have asked? They should have asked the question the crowds asked when Peter's preaching on Pentecost. They, They should have said, brothers, what should we do? That's the question they should have asked instead of, What should we do with these men? And Peter would have told them, Acts 2, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But rather than asking, what should we do? Because their hearts were convicted. Instead, they said, what should we do with these men? I love what Tony Morita says of the situation. These leaders act out of fear for their own futures and not out of the fear of God. They did not want to lose their power and influence. So instead of asking, what must we do to be saved? They asked, what must we do to keep our power? They love the praise that comes from people more than the praise that comes from God. And that's why they're more concerned with doing damage control than they're taking seriously the message of repenting and believing. And it's right here where you see the second point. It's their hardness. Because at this moment in time, their hearts were hard. They weren't soft. Do you remember the people of the day of Pentecost? When Peter said to them, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. When that was spoken, their their hearts melted. They said, what shall we do? It says in Acts 2 verse 37 that they were caught to the heart. But this religious council, when Peter said in verse 12, there's salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They should have been cut to the heart. But instead, their heart was hard, seeking damage control rather than forgiveness. One commentator said it this way, Even the miraculous is not self-authenticating apart from the openness of heart and mind. And the Sadducees' preoccupation with protecting their vested interests shut them off from really seeing the miracle that occurred. John Stott said they could not deny it and they would not acknowledge it. And you see, they have a disposition that's against it. And if the disposition is against it, no amount of miracle is going to take them and persuade them. And I just, this is super helpful as we think about being a witness for Jesus. Which is going to be our application through all the book of Acts. Right? When talking with your neighbors and friends and co-workers and family members about Jesus, you need to realize that fundamentally, your unsafe people in your sphere of your world are just like these people in the council. They have a disposition against Jesus and their hearts are hard. They're hard to the way of truth. 
So catch this. Even if you would do a genuine miracle before them, it would not be sufficient to persuade them apart from the sovereign hand of God softening their hearts as he did on the day of Pentecost as these people have hard hearts. Uh, Picture this. Even if we go to Walter Lawson Children's Home, right? Just right out the door, head north on Alpine, go across uh, Harlem, and right there, there's a children's home. Maybe you guys have seen there. I've been in there before, and it's a very depressing place, very difficult place, where you have children who are mentally and physically disabled. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if all of them are. Most of them are in a wheelchair because they cannot move, and they just kind of grunt, and they slobber, and they, there's just like nothing, nothing there with many of them. Um, kudos to the nurses who care for them and the CPA, C, CPAs, C, CNAs that care for them, right? They can't walk or speech. What if I would go over there and I'd walk in the door, take one of them by the hand and say, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth to stand up and walk. And one of them stands up and walks, begins speaking clearly and walks right out that door. And then I take that same one to my unbelieving neighbor. I said, look at Look at, look at this, this man, look at this boy, Joe, he's 14 years old, he spent it all his time in the Walter Lawson children's home, and now he can talk, it's the power of Jesus. That's not enough to persuade him, it's not enough. Let's be done with searching miracles, thinking that miracles are going to be the key to opening people's hearts. Your neighbor would not believe that. How about this, if I go to a funeral home, If I go to a funeral home and find a casket there and I open the casket and see a dead corpse there and I put my hand on that waxy skin and I say, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the flesh on that corpse begins to change from ashen to pink and the blood starts to flow and the fingers start to move and the eyes start to blink and pretty soon that corpse is standing up, walking, getting up out of that casket, and then walking right out of the funeral home. You think the funeral director might believe? No. If you don't believe me, listen to the story that Jesus tells. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus on his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm that's been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. I have five brothers so he may warn them lest they come into this place of torment as well. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In other words, if you are unwilling to hear the message of the gospel of your salvation that comes from the Bible and comes in the name of Jesus to repent and believe in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins... If people don't believe that message, they won't believe any miracle that you give to them. Because a heart is hard and dispossessed against it, even though this miracle took place and they cannot deny it. They said here in uh, verse 16, even if they can't deny it, there's still hearts will be hard to resist the gospel. And I just say, I find this super encouraging in evangelism that I can't change hearts. I can tell others about Jesus. I can pray to God that he would, would work. I can pray to God that he would soften a heart. But it, it frees me to speak. It frees me as a pastor. Not to, not to envy Peter who preached and 3,000 were saved in one day. And soon after that, a church of 10,000 rising up. And Why? Because it was the Lord who was adding to their number day after day those who were being saved. Acts 2 verse 47. And the reason where we are is because of God's working in his sovereign plan. 
And I don't need to look and say, what's wrong with my preaching? What's wrong with me when I see scores of unbelievers hearing that gospel, but few repenting? Because it's not me and my preaching. It's, it's the Lord and His working <clears throat> in His sovereign plan somehow. And we don't need to look at the explosive growth of the church in the book of Acts and say, oh, we need to do likewise and we need to be likewise and be discouraged at the end like, oh, Rock Valley Bible Church, we've not exploded like that, right? We've continued to hover at 140 people. Rather than thousands gathered in the early church. Listen, right? But where hearts are hard, the Lord will open things up. The Lord has to work. And likewise, I just say, from a pastor's perspective, that's helpful. And from your perspective, that ought to be helpful as well. Because when you speak with people and they don't believe, be comforted. Even if you do a great miracle. Even if someone says, yeah, well, I stand. If, if God would strike a lightning, then, then I'll believe. You know what? The lightning will come and they still won't believe. John 12, because that happened. The lightning came down and they said, ooh, right? It thundered. God spoke from heaven, rather. God spoke from heaven. They said, oh, it was lightning. They didn't even believe God's voice when it spoke. Their hearts are hard. And just be comforted right? that your unsaved neighbor and your unsaved family member is just like these religious leaders. They want to protect themselves. And, and the older people get, the more they have to protect and the harder it is for them to radically transform their lives. At any rate, here these teachers command them, verse 18, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And this is the issue. It's the name of Jesus that's at stake. When the lame man was healed, it was in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I command you, rise up and walk. Chapter 3, verse 6. The power of Jesus, right? In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Acts chapter 4 and verse 2. They were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. In the name of Jesus. When the Sanhedrin brought these men in for trial, they, they said in chapter 4 and verse 7, by what power, what, by name, what, by what name are you doing this? See, it's the name of Jesus where is, is at issue here. And Peter responded, saying there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that's why the Sanhedrin charged them, verse 17, to speak no more in this name, because this name resent, re- represents the person, and the person is the power. And so I just encourage you to even take that, that phrase where it's the name of Jesus is the issue. And you're speaking with other people. Make Jesus an issue. I mean, it's good to talk about God in general, undefined, right, to, to help people. It's good to speak about the, the scriptures and the, and the Bible, right? I mean, it's, it's good to talk about faith and what God requires of us, or church and Christians' activity. But never be content until you've mentioned the name of Jesus, right? mentioning the name they they told them no more to teach in the same they could have done more miracles they could have taught a lot more things just don't mention jesus isn't that like our society today i mean our society is okay with a lot of christian religious things unless until you bring it down to the name of jesus and that's a wedge and it still is a, a dividing line today and so when talking with others about christmas bring up jesus when talking to others about easter Bring up Christmas. When talking to others, uh, we're talking to others about Christmas. Bring up Jesus. We're talking about Easter. Bring up Jesus. When talking about faith and God, bring up Jesus. Let's bring the name up. It's the name that people must deal with. It's the name that these leaders hated. It's the name that our world today hates to hear. It's the name of Jesus we must proclaim. And then we find Peter and John refusing to submit to the order of the council. Look at verse eighteen. They called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them. I love how they turn the tables here. He said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We've seen the boldness of the apostles. We've seen the hardness of the religious leaders. And now we see the faithfulness of the apostles. See, if the Sanhedrin thought that a ban on Jesus' name to, to, would, would work to stop the spreading of the gospel, they were quickly disillusioned. As Peter fearlessly says here that he will not keep quiet. Jesus had commanded them, and indeed commands all of us, uh, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them... To observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And, and, and they receive that command. And of course, they need to obey that command rather than obey the council. It says, don't obey that command. 
And I love how Peter communicates with them. Not merely telling them, well, we're going to disobey you, but really putting it on them. Appealing to their own heart. Appealing to their own conscience by turning the tables. He says, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to, to God, you must judge. In other words, Peter and John understood the levels of authority. They had some governmental religious authorities in their life and they would obey them, but there was a a greater authority, which is God. And ultimately, we all are accountable to the the greater authority. And this is one of those instances where we're commanded to resist our authorities. They prohibit us from doing something that God has clearly commanded us to do. In this case, it was preaching. The Lord commanded to proclaim Christ to others. The council said, you cannot do it. And they did this very thing. They disobeyed their religious authorities. And Peter put it right on them. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But then he continues, verse 20, and I love this. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It's it's not merely here that, no, we won't stop preaching. What he says? He says, we cannot stop preaching. This is faithfulness with a full heart. See, it's one thing to be faithful to the Lord in what you do. It's a matter of duty, right? God tells you to do something and you know it's the right thing. And so you just, you do that. Kind of out of obedience is good and commendable. I encourage all of you when facing that dilemma about, well, something I don't really want to do, but I know God tells me to do that. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and do that because I trust that it is the best thing for me to do this. That's faithfulness for sure. But that's like on the lowest level. You take another level up, and it is with a willing heart that says, I, I love the Lord. He tells me to do that. Then, then I will do that because I love the Lord. But, but you want to go better yet here. The apostles are another step. Like, God tells me to do this, and now I don't want to. I cannot do anything but do this. I cannot stop doing this. I will do that. Why? Because we've seen and heard. I've seen it. I've heard. I cannot stop talking about that. And that's the essence of what it means to be a witness. It means that we speak forth of all that we have seen and heard. A witness in a courtroom just testifies to what they know. And so likewise, as the book of Acts calls us to be my witnesses, we just need to testify of what we know. And that's the importance here, by the way, of spending much time with Jesus. You will speak forth from what you spend much time thinking about. I mean, if what you have seen and heard is the sports page, you know what you're going to talk about? You're going to talk about how the Bears have zero chance of winning today against the Saints. You're going to talk about that. I'm a Bears fan, okay? I I hope I'm a bad prophet, right? But if you talk about the sports page, you're going to, that's what you can talk about. Uh, Lots of you have been reading the sports page, maybe. Um, If what you've seen and heard are all the news websites and the cable news outlets, you're going to talk about the, the Capitol riots and how bad things are and how bad the president is and how this is worse than ever can be before and just, that's what you're going to talk about and if what you've seen and heard are the latest netflix series you're going to speak about all those shows that you have seen right whatever you see and hear that's what you're going to speak and talk about but if you spend time with jesus in word and prayer what do you think you're going to talk about hello if you spend time with jesus in word and prayer what are you going to talk about yeah. jesus obviously right and I just say, this is the path of faithfulness in, in witnessing, right? It's not some cam formulate gospel presentation. You pull out of your back pocket and say, oh, here's the way, right? Here's the problem and here's the solution. Here's Jesus. No, share with people what you read this morning. Share it with, with people how you know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. What the Lord your God requires of you. Right, to, to walk in all his ways, to love him and serve him with all your heart. Talk about the things that you have read. Persuade people with your own witness to Jesus, not with some canned presentation a salesman might do to persuade others to purchase a product. No, it's relational. What, what you've seen and heard, speak forth. Let me just ask you a hypothetical and then I'll close this morning. It says, what if... We spent a whole week, and we took a media fast, didn't listen to any news, didn't read any papers, but just spent our time reading the Bible and praying. What do you think you'd talk about? Ding, ding, ding. That's what it means to be a witness. 
And here we are, the first wave of persecution. Verse 21. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And here we see just the first wave, and the first wave here is just a rebuke. In chapter 5, we get there in a few weeks, we're going to find out these apostles are also called before the Sanhedrin. This time the the rebuke didn't work, so it steps up, and they're going to be flogged, and they're going to be... uh, beaten. In fact, you can turn over there and look Look at this. Chapter 5, verse 40. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they beat them. And here's the response. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And they just kept going. And then every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So here's just a verbal rebuke. Then it's going to be physical punishment. And then we're going to see in chapter 7, even death. But death of Stephen even spread the gospel further as people went out more emboldened their faith than ever before. So let's be a witness for Jesus. Let's realize this is the first wave of the persecution that's coming. And that the end... A persecution, what it, what it results in is a church that is unlike any church that we have in America. Hours-long services where this becomes our only place where we can come and be. Yeah, we may be impoverished materially, but God has blessed us spiritually as the testimony of the, the Christians. Read even on the radio, the shortwave radio went into Russia slow enough at dictation speed so they could write the words down. And, by the way, when things got really well in Russia, how well do you think the church did? The church, which used to be vibrant and alive, kind of reduced down. So just know this wave of persecution. When things are hard, that's good. It's when, when you are being forced and pressed and, and demanded to give an answer for your faith and, and being pressed and persuaded, that's a good thing for your faith. And so let's embrace persecution when it comes. Let's embrace hardship when it comes. Because here in Acts, here's the first wave, and we're going to see plenty more waves come after that. So let me just pray. Father, I would pray that you would help us to embrace persecution in our lives. Everyone who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Father, it just even causes me to think, have I really lived godly in Christ Jesus with very little persecution in my life? So God would pray that you teach us to be bold like these apostles. Teach us to be faithful. And God, I would pray... That those to whom we would speak, God, you would develop soft hearts. God, that people would say, what shall we do? And we can tell them to repent and believe in Christ. So, Father, help us and strengthen us at Rock Valley Bible Church. God, not only this week, but also in in, uh, days and weeks and months and years to come. Oh, God, be with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.